Good morning, Grace. Welcome. My name is Kenny, one of the elders here at Grace. If you're new or have been visiting recently around here, and uh, it's my privilege to open the Bible and preach it this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, but you would like a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles for free we would love to give to you as a gift. And if you don't want to get up and slip out right now on your way out in the, uh, in the lobby on your way out, just ask one of our ushers and they'd be happy to give you one. Um, but as we start, I want us to not rush past that song we just sang for a minute. That song very intention- was written very intentionally to do something. For three verses, if you were paying attention, all those questions that it was asking, that we were asking, were piling up um, attributes of God such as his power and authority and his greatness and his justice and his majesty with statements like this, that our God commands the hosts of heaven. Our God can and one day will make every king bow down, bow the knee before his reign and authority and power. We sang that darkness itself trembles at just the whispers of our God. That his beauty is so great that it demands the praises of the whole world and that his splendor outshines the sun. We've never seen the fullness of God's splendor. He rules with justice. His holiness consumes like fire. On and on the song goes. And then, very intentionally, I think, in verse four, it takes a sudden turn. And having piled all that up, we then sing that this same God has stooped down to rescue us individually from our failing. Yes, That this same God offered his only son who willingly offered himself to be a blood sacrifice for the guilt of our sin so that we can be forgiven. And uh, verse four on its own would be a powerful song to sing if we just sang that verse. But having sung the first three verses amplifies the glory and the beauty of the condescension of God, doesn't it? When you realize who it is that is stooping so low. And the reason I want us to think about that in that song is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in a way, Paul is arguing in the same way. He's writing in a similar way for 14 verses. He's going to build this argument and and, and maybe, in, in, in your opinion or my opinion, maybe give more arguments than he needs to make his point. I mean, his point is very clear, you're going to see, but he just piles up arguments to establish a right that he has only then in verse 15 to say that he's relinquished this right. And he wants us to understand the first part so that we understand the the significance of the second part and all with the view to pointing to Christ. Um, As I have been in this passage for the last week or two, um, two heart issues that this past this chapter confronts in me and Lord willing in you this morning one is what already began last week in chapter 8 confronting the selfishness that's inherent in my heart that always is inclined to default to prioritize my rights before loving others the, the me firstness that still lurks in my heart this chapter is going to continue um, to press against But it also 
brings conviction to my heart for a lack of urgency or burden that I can have that this amazing good news that we're singing about, that we're, I'm gonna preach about this morning, can often not create a burden like I read from Paul's pen here that he had that people who don't know Christ would come to know him and be saved. So I'm, I've been praying that God would use this chapter among many ways to, to kindle or rekindle this sort of burning in our bellies, desire that people know Jesus. So let me explain kind of how chapter nine fits within the section that it's in. Jackson used a great analogy a few weeks ago about the structure of chapter seven, that it was like a sandwich. There was kind of three sections and the part right in the middle sort of spoke to and controlled um, both the, the, the first and the last part. Well, chapters eight and 10 kind of work like a sandwich too. Chapters eight and 10, the matter that Paul's dealing with <clears throat> is this tricky cultural matter that the church in Corinth has to navigate related to food that was from animals that had formerly been sacrificed to pagan idols in pagan temples and different contexts in which that food may be eaten. And in chapter eight, he gives a strong warning to Christians in the church that, Paul, that Eric referred to as knowers. And that was that they know, they have some knowledge about idols that at the end of the day, an idol's not real. There's one true living God. And their knowledge led them with a clear conscience to say a hamburger that once was an animal offered in a pagan temple, but now is sitting on my dining room table in my house is just a hamburger. It wasn't mis mysteriously, uh, mystically imbued with defiling spiritual properties. I can give thanks with a, with a clean conscience and eat that hamburger to the glory of God. Except among them were weaker brothers and sisters for whom it was not that easy and they didn't have this knowledge and their former association with idols still clung to them and bothered their conscience and for them it didn't matter where even if it was eating it in the privacy of their own home still their consciences would be defiled to eat that and so Paul strongly warns the knowers this is my paraphrase of, of the point that Eric made last week he strongly owned warns them you take care knowers that in enjoying your Christian freedom, you're right, you're not pushing a brother or sister for whom Christ died back to their former idols. But instead, gladly lay down your rights to avoid causing them to stumble because love builds up. That was chapter eight. That's the first, you know, side of the piece of bread in the sandwich. At the end of this section in chapter 10, He's going to warn the knowers about something else next week. Randy's going to preach this passage. He's going to say, now, not so fast, knowers. There are some contexts in which you eating food sacrificed to idols actually is participating in something that is evil and demonic and provokes the Lord to jealousy. So not so fast. But then he's going to finish chapter 10, returning to this, this urge to, to not use your Christian liberty in a way that causes your weaker brothers to stumble. And in chapter 11, verse 1, is the exclamation point on the other side of the sandwich. That's mixing metaphors. That's weird. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I think that command there sort of summarizes the whole 8 through 10. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ in this matter of love, willing to lay aside any right for the sake of love. 
And so chapter 9 fits in the middle of this sandwich like this. In chapter 9, every verse but one, Paul's speaking about himself. He's putting himself forward as an example, worthy of imitation, insofar as that he is being an imitator of Christ. So we're to read chapter 9, 1, asking, so how am I to imitate Paul here? But also, how is Paul imitating Jesus here? Two lenses we should see this chapter through. So that's chapter 9. And the first question in chapter 9 is, is the segue from what he was just talking to about to what he's about to do by putting himself forward in his example. He says, um, am I not free? I think in other, in other words, I've just been speaking to all you knowers about your rights and how you've been choosing to use them. Let me talk to you a bit about my rights and how I have chosen to use them. That's what nine is about. And he's going to encourage them by example to lay aside their rights for the sake of the gospel. And I want to work through this, this bit in, in four points here. Paul's right defended. He's going to start by establishing this right that he has as an apostle. Secondly, his right relinquished. He's going to say, yes, I have that right, but I have freely chosen not to make use of it. Then he's going to talk about his reward. What does he see as his reward in this? Because he doesn't do it reluctantly with grumbling, but joyfully. So joyfully, in fact, that he would say, he, he's going to say, I'd rather die than give up the right to give up this right. <laughs> and then we're going to see his rationale. There's a purpose and a strategy, a love strategy, even behind him being willing to lay aside this right. So let's read chapter 9, verse 1 through 23. And work through it. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. This is the defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of, our Lord, uh, of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends up a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Well, doesn't the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these gifts 
these rights, I, I'm sorry, these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. I pray, like Paul prayed for us here, God, that you would give us the strength to comprehend along with all the saints through history what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God so that then, filled with the fullness of God, we would leave here this morning with love to spill out on others and a burden to, to, to make Christ known, unignorable in our circles, in our neighborhoods, in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the first 14 verses, Paul is defending a right that he has. He wants them to really understand that this is absolutely something he is entitled to. And he starts in verses one and two just reminding them of his apostolic credentials, of who he is. He says, am I not an apostle? And he asks a couple of questions that he assumes they will answer, well, yes, in the affirmative. He says, have I, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He would assume they'd say, well, yes, we know that. We know that when you came to Christ, Christ had an encounter with you on the Damascus Road and, and visibly revealed himself to you and spoke to you personally and called you into the ministry that you're now in. And this is one of, the, one of the, credent, or the qualifications of an apostle in Acts 1. Had to be someone who had seen, had been an eyewitness of the risen Lord. But then second, he asks, aren't you my workmanship in the Lord? He says, you're in Christ. You believe in Jesus because I laid the foundation of your faith. I came and preached and the Holy Spirit was pleased to waken you to new life. And so your very existence sort of ratifies my apostleship. It, it, it exemplifies or it demonstrates that I truly am a minister of God, of the gospel. And having established that and reminding them of that, he begins building this argument. In verses three through six, he says, Here, here's the right. All these rhetorical questions essentially are saying, Paul's saying, I have the right to financial support as a minister of the gospel. And in verse seven, he begins, 
these arguments, three arguments just from the natural world, just analogies from everyday life. He says, soldiers deserve to be clothed and fed and housed as they're protecting and serving others, don't they? I mean, you wouldn't expect them to go and work a second job to provide all those things so then on their second shift they can protect and serve. It just, you wouldn't expect that. He says, surely vineyard planters deserve to enjoy some of what they grow and shepherds deserve some of the milk from their flocks, right? He assumes no one would, would argue with this. And then in verse 8 he says, well, or let's go to the Bible. Those are just from human authority, he says. Let's go to God's inspired word. He says, how about the law of Moses? Deuteronomy 25, there's this command, don't muzzle your ox while it's treading out the grain. The principle behind this is, as your ox is pulling a heavy weight, dragging it around, breaking open the grain so that it can nourish you and your family, allow it to be nourished as it goes. Allow it to eat as it's, as it's working. It's no good for you to withhold nourishment from your ox who's working hard to provide you with nourishment. That's counterintuitive. That's the principle of the law. And he argues then from sort of lesser to greater. How much more true is that with human laborers who labor to nourish other people like plowmen and threshers? Shouldn't they also have a share in some of the hard work that they're doing? All these, he assumes they would say, well, of course. In verse 11 then he says, if this applies to those who sow and reap physical seeds to nourish people physically, how much more so should this apply to those who sow and reap spiritual seed, who take God's word and handle it carefully and, and, and lead people to Christ and help people grow in Christ and who, who make disciples with God's word and lead people into eternal life? How much more are they, are they worthy of being supported as they do that? That's his argument. And then at the end of verse 12, I think he's so eager to get to why he's building this argument that he prematurely jumps to it and then forgets, remembers, oh, I had a couple of other arguments still to make. Look at the end of verse 12. Uh, at the beginning, he says, I'm uniquely entitled to material provision for you because I've worked very hard for your souls. But then he says, nevertheless, we haven't made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> and I think he thinks, wait, I had a couple more arguments left. Verse 13, he says, also from biblical authority, think of the temple worship and those who serve at the temple and who offer the, the sacrificial animals that you bring to God. How do they put food on the table? Well, God ha has a plan for that. That the food that goes home and that their families enjoy on their table comes from portions of the sacrificed animals that are being offered. God's made provision for them. And the trump card is verse 14. He said, and the words of our Lord, the Lord commanded... Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I was thinking of Matthew 10 when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples with his authority to go and minister in his name with his power, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And as he does, he says this, acquire no gold or silver for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Just go with the clothes on your back. For the laborer deserves his food. So that's Paul's case. He's built this huge case so that hopefully none of the Corinthians would disagree that this was a right that he was entitled to while he was in Corinth. But we get to verse 15, and he says, I have relinquished that right. Point two. 
his right relinquished. He says, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision now. So he's not saying, hint, hint, I didn't while I was with you, but you know, I could use a little help right now. He's not trying to pressure you. He's, he wants it to be clear. I'm building this argument only so that I can help you understand the significance of me relinquishing this right. So we need to understand, Paul, at times, was willing to receive financial support as a missionary, but from churches where he had planted, as he was then in new areas, bringing the gospel to other people. So at times, the Philippians, for example, were supporters of him as he was elsewhere uh, working, kind of like we do with many of our Grace Partners. We provide financial support so they can be where they are offering the gospel for free to the people with whom they are. And that was Paul's practice. Look at this from 1 Thessalonians 2. He says to them, remember brothers, our labor and toil? We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That was important to Paul. He did it with the Ephesians in Acts uh, oh, this is Ephesians 20. There is no such thing. It's Acts chapter 20. Um, at the end of three years with the Ephesian church, and he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And he had done the same with the Corinthians. In Acts 18, he met up with Aquila and Priscilla who were also tent makers like Paul had been. And he worked hard with his hands in leather working, meanwhile, preaching the gospel to those in Corinth. And the point he wants them to, to, to make is he didn't have to do that. He made life harder for himself. He added to his burden for the sake of bringing the gospel to them. He doesn't want them to feel guilty about this. or he does, he's, he's, yeah, It's not about m- manipulating, but he wants them to understand he didn't have to do this. He did this freely. So the question is then why? What was Paul's reward in this? What did Paul have to gain from laying aside this right? From, our, from their perspective, they would think that, that would only be a loss for you, Paul. But he says in verses 16 through 18 that actually, no, in doing this, there was a reward for him, a reward that he was not willing to give up. And the reward was this. He says that I may present the gospel free of charge. 15 through 18, I think were tricky verses this week. I spent a lot of time trying to go, okay, what exactly is the point you're making? He talks about boasting and his reward. And and what was helpful to me is finally thinking that, that these verses, I think, are speaking to the question, why does Paul seem so glad to give up this right? Because he does, right? It doesn't seem reluctant as he says these things. He seems very eager and zealous and willing to give up this right. So why is it that to him, this is non-negotiable? This is how I think he argues. Verse 15, again, he says, I've never taken money from you before and I'm not asking now. I'd rather die than have this ground for boasting taken away from me. Is that phrase, ground for boasting, weird to you a little bit? Sounds like, wait a minute, your, your ground for boasting? I mean, is this that Paul thought, you know, I'm better than all the other apostles and Cephas and the brothers of James. They all use their right, but I work with my hands. I don't take pay. And he's sort of priding himself um, self-righteously in that. I don't think that's Paul. I don't think that's what he's doing here. 
It's a boasting of a different sort. I think it's the same sort of boasting we hear in Romans. Look at this from Romans 15. Look what he writes. If, if, if Paul didn't write this, I'm not sure we would feel the freedom to talk this way. But listen, he says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Does that seem weird for you to imagine saying? I, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, he says. Here's why. For I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. It's a Christ-honoring sort of sense of pride and boasting that's not self-exalting and self-congratulatory, but humble and and full recognition of the total dependence upon Christ and his power and his grace. Nevertheless, it's a sort of sense of boasting. And so I was trying to imagine what is this feeling that he's, he's talking about I think it's the feeling that every believer one day hearing Jesus say to you the words, well done, good and faithful servant. How do you imagine you will feel when Jesus, if Jesus says those words to you one day? Do you think you'll be puffed up in your heart as he says that? Like, ah, it's about time. We're looking around at other people. Did you hear that? No. You won't feel proud at all like that But there will be a sense of pride, like Paul said, a sense of glorying in this and exalting in this, that I got to be part of something that brought pleasure to to Jesus and was part of accomplishing his purposes in the world. And there's a sense of satisfaction. I think that's the kind of boasting that Paul's talking about here. So the question then is, how is his free choice to relinquish his right provide this ground for boasting? Why does giving away this right cause him to feel like this? Well, verse 16, he argues like this. He says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Literally, I'm damned if I don't. That's strong language. Here's why. Paul had never forgotten his conversion the uniqueness of his conversion. He was a persecutor of God's church. He gave his approval to the martyrdom of believers, followers of Jesus, and he was on his way to round up believers of Jesus in Damascus when Christ finally knocked him off his horse to the ground and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How long will you kick against the goads? And he never got over. You see it at the beginning of 2 Timothy. Late in life, he still couldn't believe that God would save him, that Jesus would have mercy on him. And his conversion was not just a conversion, but it was simultaneously a calling of being drafted into Christ's service. He said to, of Paul at that point in his conversion, Jesus says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So in Paul's mind, there may be other missionaries and ministers who are volunteering for the position, but his was not a voluntary thing. He was drafted. He is under compulsion. I think that's why he frequently in his letters refers to himself as a bond servant of Christ. I just got a thumbs up from Kent. That's agreement, right? Yes. He doesn't feel he has a choice in the matter, but that doesn't mean he's doing it without joy. He goes on, verse 17. So if I do this of my own will, which he's saying he doesn't, then I have a reward. 
But if not of my own will, which he's saying is the case, he says, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. And he sees no ground for boasting for merely being a servant that does his duty. It made me think of the first time Betsy and I went to China. Um, I would thank service workers all the time. Like we'd go to McDonald's and order our food and I'd pay and I'd say, Shishé. It was one of the only three or four Mandarin words I knew. Or in our hotel, we'd call room service and they'd bring something up to our room and I'd say, Shishé. And almost every time it would just be met with a blank stare and no response. And I would think, I must be saying this right. It's tonal. I probably offended them. I probably said something, you know. And we get back to the United States, and, and I was talking with Tom and Sue Kimber, who had been missionaries in China for many years. And as soon as I said this, they both looked at each other, started laughing. They said, oh, yeah, our, our, our friends and neighbors in China, they said, you Americans say thank you too, too much. You love saying thank you. And they explained that, that culturally, typically a service worker doesn't get thanked in, on, on a daily basis because they're, they're just doing their job. I mean, they get paid to do that. That's, 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 that's my, my job is to serve you hamburgers and to take your money for it. Why are you thanking me for that? And Paul seems to have some sort of sense of, I don't have a ground for boasting for just being a minister of the gospel. I didn't have a choice in that matter. Christ called me to it, and I'm grateful to do it. But he does have joy in this, and that's verse 18. He says, you know what my reward is in this? What is my ground for boasting? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So he doesn't feel the freedom not to be a missionary, but he does see the freedom to relinquish this right. And it's not asceticism. You know what that is of of, uh, uh, purposefully adding burden, making it more burdensome to yourself so that maybe God will smile more on your greater sacrifice. This is not him trying to to make God happier by doing things more hard. He's denying himself, uh, himself to love others and to have the ability to deliver this good news message to them in a manner that actually illustrates the very message he's sharing that the free gift of God is eternal life to all who will believe in him. And the very manner in which he's able to give this message exemplifies the message itself. I can give it freely with no obstacle, no hindrance, no stumbling block. He says, that's my reward and it's a privilege I'm not willing to give up. He's also not willing to give it up because there's a rationale behind it. There's a a strategy, a loving strategy behind, in particular, him setting aside this right uniquely. Look at verses 19 through 23. Five times he says, I've chosen to do this that I might win. That I might win that I might win, that I might win. And then in verse 22, that I might save some. So that's what he means by winning, is saving people. That phrase, soul winning, I don't think these days is a a very popular phrase among Christians. I think in previous generations, that was a more popular term for the, the work of an evangelist is to be a soul winner. I wonder if it can hit our ears negatively because it can sound like people are trophies to be collected. Um, uh, They're not really people. They're just notches in a belt maybe. Uh, Or that being a soul winner places too much focus and emphasis on the person and maybe makes it sound like it's the power that they have. But Paul didn't feel any of that. In this letter, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave growth. 
But nevertheless, he's able to say, I want to win people to Christ. I want to win people to Christ. I'm deeply convicted by Paul's example in this and the urgency and the personal burden and the drive he had to want others who are outside of Christ, who don't know this grace and mercy, haven't received it and experienced it yet, I want more to know it. And that he'd do all for the sake of this gospel, this good news. It's because of this. It's because Jesus is worthy of worship. When we think about winning people to Christ, we need to think about what we were seeing earlier, that he's worthy, worthy, worthy to receive all praise. God is worthy of praise. His greatness is unsearchable and his praise ought to be um, match the magnitude of his greatness. He's the most glorious being in ever. He created all things with a word and every single person that you have ever met, every single one of you in this room, he created in his image with a soul hunger that whether you know it or not will only ever be met by seeing his glory, knowing him and having relationship with him forever. And maybe you need to realize this morning that what drives you in your life to work hard or exceed or whatever you're you're striving for that's, that's not God is trying to fill a hunger that only God can fill. And Paul understood this. And that we've all fallen short of this glory of God. Every one of us um, at our core has refused to treat God as God in the world he made as people that he made. But he's merciful and his son Jesus became one of us to bear the guilt of that offense for God in our place so that God can then freely give us the gift of forgiveness and new relationship that we didn't earn. That's the good news of the gospel. And when we think of then taking that good news and bringing it to people, it's winning people that God is worthy of their praises. Jesus is worthy of their praises. It made me think of a a famous old quote from these two Moravian uh, missionaries in the 1700s as they boarded a ship to leave for the West Indies to take the gospel to slaves. And reportedly, as their ship pulled out, their final words to their friends on, on the docks were these, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That's a desire, a a, a jealousness for Jesus to receive all the worship he's due by displaying the glory of why he's due that praise. Missions exists because worship doesn't, John Piper famously wrote. Missions is worship winning, winning worshipers. We've been entrusted with a message Do we feel the burden that we hear Paul have here? Does it create a fire in our bellies like it did for Paul? Not just this morning for this hour and 15 minutes while I'm in here and we're all together worshiping. Sometimes we can feel it burning in our hearts and it's cooled off by the time we're in our car. We gotta pray, Lord, stir this in us. And Paul waves this right with, because of a broader rationale, and it's, verse, uh, it's, it's the following verse. Though I am free from all, he says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. It's that fundamental approach that Eric was talking about last night, or last week to the Christian life. Broadly speaking, it's the willingness to lay down any right, whatever it is, to build up 
to build up my brother or that I might win someone to Christ. Specifically, in soul winning, Paul has chosen to lay aside this particular right because he realizes it often might prove to be an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That's a very helpful uh, image, I think, for us. An obstacle is something in the way that blocks your ability to see something or something that blocks your ability to hear something. It's like interference and static that blocks the transmission. And he's saying this gospel message can be blocked, an obstacle put in the way, potentially, if I exercise this right. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak of the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's just another way of saying an obstacle, right? If I lack love, something is going to block the transmission of the message, the words that I might share. That's how Paul saw it. And so in verse 20, he said, so here's what I'll gladly set aside. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, you should underline that parenthetical part is very important. He's saying, I will not compromise theologically to win people to Christ because I can't win people to Christ if I compromise theologically and don't give them the true gospel. So he would have been clear always that circumcision or any other outward religious observance or ritual does not commend us to God. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nevertheless, He was willing, for example, in Acts 18 to have Timothy circumcised because his father was Greek and the Jews in the area where they were going to to minister would know that his father was Greek. That was a little bit easier for Paul to make that call than Timothy probably, but but the principle though is there. It's, It's not to compromise theologically, but to say, you know, if that will open a door to conversations and not immediately shut down transmission, then sure, do it, Timothy, but we'll make sure that the gospel message is clear that we are no longer under the law because of Christ. Or verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Again, underline the parenthetical part. That's really important. Here he's saying, I won't morally compromise myself to win people to Christ. I won't sin along with sinners for the sake of reaching sinners. That seems futile, right? (laughs) It's a self-refuting argument. He says, no, I'm not free from God's moral law, but as long as that's not jeopardized, I'm willing to flex culturally to remove obstacles to open the the, the doorway, the, the communication channel with those outside the law. Look at verse 22. He even says, to the weak, I became weak. He doesn't say I became as one who is weak. He says, to the weak, I became weak. I actually think he's not talking about the weaker brothers and sisters in chapter eight here because they're already believers. They just need to grow. I think he has in mind the weak, like in chapter one, when he says to the Corinthians, he says, remember you when you were saved. Not many of you were noble birth or powerful, but God shows all of you weak in order to shame the strong. I think he has people who were weak in the sense of social status. They weren't rich and powerful and noble birth. And Paul, I think, is saying, in relinquishing this right and working with my hands to put food on my table and not be a burden to any of you while I bring you the gospel, I've become weak so that I might reach the weak. 
Verses 22 and 23, he says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And in this grace this morning, Paul wants us to imitate him as he's imitating Christ. So remember, Paul is just an echo of Christ's incredible love and humility. And we are to be echoes of Christ's humility and love. And so we need to remember this this morning. It's because the Son of God became weak to win the weak, didn't he? That's the incarnation, isn't it? Listen to this from Philippians 2. In light of this, though Jesus was in the form of God, talk about rights, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He relinquished his divine right. And by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he didn't just become as weak, he became weak. He took on the weakness and frailty of our humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know the hymn that we sing, uh, What Wondrous Love Is This, has this verse that's very repetitive. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down, sinking down. Just as you're thinking, we get over, let's get to the next line. This says, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Son of God became weak that we might, we the weak might be one as worshipers of him. And he became as one under the law to win those who were under the law, didn't he? Listen to this from Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As a man, as one of us, under the law, he was able to fulfill God's law perfectly, perfectly pleasing God the Father to his last breath. And he was able then to redeem all of us who were under the crushing curse of the law, which we could never keep because of our sin and our fleshliness. And he then, God, graciously counts his righteousness, Jesus, to us, redeeming us out from under the law. And he does it by putting himself under the law. And the Son of God became as one outside the law, for that matter, to win all those who are outside. Think of Jesus in the Gospels, how constantly he's eat, who he's eating with, who he's sitting with, who he's teaching to, whose house he wants to go and visit that day. Always stepping around these fences that the religious leaders had erected to keep them further out and us further in. And offending these religious leaders, why? to invite them in. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we all have access in one spirit to the Father and it's all with the end goal of creating one new people who one day in a new heavens and new earth we are the people of God, one people, his people, worshiping him around his throne which is the only throne forever, crowned with eternal life. I want to say, I've been praying that, that this morning that there might be some here who today you are just like Paul was. You are stiff-arming God. And you've heard maybe what we're, I'm talking about right now before now or maybe this morning for the first time. But in your mind and your heart, you're beginning to say, if God is this glorious, if Jesus is this gracious, if he's done this for me, if these things are true, I want to know him. I want to stop fighting it's as simple as a prayer. You just talk to God. You admit your, your weakness and your sin and your failure to him. And you believe in Jesus. You confess Jesus as Lord. 
You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for your sin, to forgive your guilt, and you will be saved. You'll be forgiven, and God will dwell in you by his spirit and begin making you new, even this morning. Please do that this morning if you've never done this. And grace, as we close, this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge had burrowed so deeply into Paul's heart that he was like a man on fire. And we, need, we want to be men and women on fire like this. We need to ask God that like Paul, we would say, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with others in its blessings. Has the love of Christ gotten down that deeply in your heart this morning? If not, beg the Lord to kindle that. Let me pray. Jesus, you are worthy, worthy, worthy to receive all of our praise and you are worthy to receive the praise of so many who haven't given it to you yet and you want to use us to call worshipers, new worshipers into your kingdom. Lord, don't let us forget this as we leave it today. Put people on our minds. Help us to have the self-discipline and to, to begin praying for them and looking for inroads to speak of Christ. Have gospel conversations, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace for us, even as we're slow to get this. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.